Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We've been looking for a number of times at one of Shakespeare's greatest comedies, the festive comedy, as it's called, Twelfth Night. And we may begin by reminding ourselves of a plot that is remarkably complicated despite having very little actual action in it, which is typical of a Shakespeare comedy, but perhaps even more so of Twelfth Night. Very little plot in the orthodox sense, and yet in the Facebook sense, it's complicated. To remind ourselves quickly, our heroine, Viola, one of the great Shakespearean women characters, plucky, courageous, smart, resolute, has survived a shipwreck, disguised herself as a rather feminine-looking young man named Cesario, and has found employ in the court of Duke Orsino, who grows increasingly fond of this young man, as he thinks of it, in a way that suggests a kind of unconscious attraction, almost as if his unconscious halfway realized that there was a gender thing here. But on the surface, the surface part of Orsino's mind is determined to be fixated upon the woman Olivia, who has a household of her own, separate from his court. And the Duke is sending Cesario as a go-between rather than try to woo Olivia, who is having none of it, to put it mildly. First of all, because she declares she's in mourning for her father and brother, which seems to be a big act. But second of all, because she probably is just really is not attracted to Orsino. One wonders why Viola is. This is an issue that maybe we should take up when we have finished the play and try to look back at the total pattern and talk about thematic implications, some of them having to do with psychology and gender, and ask why so often in Shakespeare women are in love with and determined to have men who are really, by the audience's point of view, just not good enough for them. Why? What do you see in him? And of course, I will be the first to laugh if some women members of my audience say, well, dude, that's how it is in real life, too. Maybe so. We could talk. But at any rate, it's true in Shakespeare, and it's always a little bit disappointing in the back of one's mind that somebody as wonderful as Viola is determined to settle for this noodlehead who does nothing but sit around and wallow in self-pity and what he calls love melancholy. And it's all a big act. We can see that. It's not, it's skin deep. They have a conversation that we talked about, about who has deeper feelings and therefore more constancy in love. And the Duke, as we recall in the previous scene, the last scene that we looked at, which is Act Two, Scene Four, 
The Duke at first blurts out the truth. Well, if truth be told, women are a lot more constant than men. Their love is a lot truly deeper. But then when he gets into his, oh, I am the great courtly lover wallowing in my melancholy act, he gives a big speech two pages later saying exactly the opposite. Oh, women can't begin to understand the depth of the love that a man can have for a woman, etc., etc., even though the whole play proves that this is not true. And Viola replies at the end of scene four, speaking of herself in third person. You're in a hard way in life when you have to talk about yourself in the third person. But she cannot break her cover. She has sworn to service of the Duke out of true love and constancy. Why is she doing this instead of immediately undisguising herself? But no, she keeps in disguise, even though he's asked her to woo another woman for him, even though she's in love with the Duke herself. And why is she doing it? We are forced to infer that it is simply out of a kind of loyalty. It is unselfish. If this is what you truly want, then who am I to say I will go and do my best for you, an unselfish act. Whereas the actions of the so-called lovers and would-be lovers in the entire rest of the play are pretty much self-interested. Their love is therefore superficial and therefore subject to change at the drop of a hat. This runs throughout Shakespeare's comedies, the ability of lovers who declare their undying loyalty and commitment to change five minutes and two pages later in the play is just notorious. It's in Midsummer Night's Dream. It's in Much Ado About Nothing that we have looked at. And here it is true here as well. But Viola speaks of herself saying that uh, my father had a daughter, loved a man, and she never told her love, but let concealment, like a worm in the bud, feed on her damask cheek. She pined with a green and yellow melancholy, and in a famous line, she sat like patience on a monument, smiling at grief. A figure on a gravestone or monument of an allegorical patience smiling at grief. Was this not love indeed? And indeed, was we men, she is saying, because she's in character as Cesario, may say more, swear more, but indeed, our shows are more than will. And there is the thematic phrase of the full title of Twelfth Night, which has a subtitle, or what you will. Will meaning what you will to make happen. You have, as we say, willpower. But also, in Shakespeare's time, it had a secondary meaning of what you desire. At any rate, did thy sister die of her love? Viola gives riddling answers. We are about to see in a contest 
with Fest himself, the jester whose jesting consists entirely of wordplay, that Viola is very good with words and very quick on her feet. She replies, I am all the daughters of my father's house and all the brothers too, and then pauses and says, and yet I know not, meaning the reference to the brothers, meaning she knows not that her brother, Sebastian, is actually dead, only that he is presumed dead in the shipwreck that they were both in. And it's good that she holds out that little bit of reserve because we are about to find, we have actually already found that Sebastian did indeed survive. But nevertheless, she's presuming him dead, trying to be realistic about it. But definitely, I am all the daughters of my father's house. Orsino says, give her, Olivia, this jewel, and he gives a jewel to her, which sets a lot of jewelry in motion, we should say, in this play, because Olivia has already given Cesario a jewel on her own behalf. She has sent it to him, in quotation marks, as a signal that she is interested, although she has not overtly face-to-face -face declared herself yet. She will soon. But Viola is collecting a lot of jewelry here, none of it truly intended for her in an accurate way, which represents this passing back and forth. Viola is a go-between. She is in a very interesting role. The newsletter of two weeks in the present period of time has been, one appeared today about the trickster, and there will be a part two about the figure of the trickster in mythology. And a trick trickster is a betwixt and between, and therefore a good go-between, between two opposed opposites. And that is Viola's role here. She shuttles back and forth. And her gender ambiguity is a part of that, betwixt and between, either or, neither nor, both and, paradoxical identity. More on that quite deep theme later. At any rate, in Act 2, Scene 5, we return to the Rowdy Crew, the subplot. We have been looking at the romantic courtly love plot that is the surface action, but then Shakespeare always has a contrapuntal secondary plot in just about all of his comedies and romances. Usually low-life characters, but here it is out of control and chaotic, aristocratic characters. Sir Toby Belch and his crew, that includes Sir Andrew Eguchik and the gentlewoman-in-waiting Maria and a man called Fabian. These are a kind of a rowdy gang who are living up to the title, Twelfth Night, a reference to the carnival season. The play not only doesn't say that it takes place during Twelfth Night, we are left to ask, but then why is it called Twelfth Night? 
but it never actually pins that down, and we're about to meet soon. References to quite the other end of the year, leaving it up to ambiguity. And that's part of the theme of Overturn. Opposites, spring, winter, end of the year, beginning of the year, topsy-turvy, overturned, and ambiguous. Almost everything is in this play, which is why, to anticipate a moment, the theme of madness, the theme of confusion, of identity, confusion about what is reality, will come into play as the action intensifies. That is a theme below the surface in just about all of the comedies and romances, the question of the solidity of reality. There is, if you want to be fancy about it, an epistemological level, a theory of knowing what is real. When things are so metamorphic, things are so elusive. And never mind to say that a lot of the metamorphic chaos is produced by the characters, because it certainly is. And the Sir Toby crew, that's what they're good at, that's what they love. They are into revelry, the Twelfth Night revelry of what was called Carnival in the Middle Ages, a, theory, a, a period of social overturn and relaxation of the ordinary rules. And that's what they're doing. And they're plotting against their antagonist, Malvolio. Malvolio is the steward of Olivia's household. Therefore, he has the job of trying to keep order in it. And lots of luck, Malvolio, to grant the devil his due. That's a rather thankless task in a household that consists of this bunch. And they are instantly up against him. They are out of control, and in the end, to anticipate, they will be told, okay, you guys need to reform and clean up your act a little bit here. But, on the other hand, Malvolio tries to enforce a type of rigid order in a self-righteous way that is bound only to make things worse. And not only that, but they correctly smell that he's a hypocrite. He claims to love order because order is moral and chaos is dissolute and some sort of backsliding. But in fact, they have him pretty correctly sized up. He is a climber. He is like certain presidential candidates currently who clearly are using the contest to position themselves as climbers and get what power they can get. And he pretty much admits that in some of his private fantasies, so it's not just a slur on the part of Sir Toby, etc. And they have smelled this. He is obnoxious and he's a hypocrite, and they're going to get him for it. And here he comes and in a soliloquy, blurts all of this out. One of the things that happens in Shakespearean comedies that does not happen in real life, or maybe does not happen in the same way, 
if you were to update this, it would probably be people discovering a text message or an email that revealed it all. But here we have a soliloquy in which he is imagining climbing through marrying Olivia, which is not only, of course, a bad reason for marrying somebody, but on, the, uh, on top of that represents a kind of class presumption on his part because he is of the middle class. He's called a Puritan in a figurative way, suggesting the Puritans of Shakespeare's actual society who were the rising middle class and who were, of course, very puritanical and hated and were appalled by carnival types of revelry and other activities. But Malvolio's a fake, as we say, and here he is admitting it, blurting it out in a soliloquy, imagining, ah, uh, to be Count Malvolio, in other words, to be married to Olivia and therefore have total power in this household, imagines having been three months married to her, sitting in my state in a branched velvet gown, having come from a daybed where I have left Olivia sleeping, and this crowd are just absolutely outraged with him at the arrogance of it and the presumption of it, and imagines, Malvolio imagines speaking down to Sir Toby's crowd, you must amend your drunkenness. Ah, but then he notices a letter lying on the ground. And we know from the previous plot that this is the plan of action hatched basically by Maria because she can imitate her lady's handwriting and they have faked a letter and put it where they know that Malvolio is going to see it and pick it up. And sure enough, here he does. And exclaims, by my life, this is my lady's hand. These be her very C's, her U's, her T's, and thus makes her her great P's. How she makes her letters. But if you're as quick as you need to be verbally to follow the dialogue of a Shakespeare play, he's referring to the way she does her handwriting, but C-U-T. What's being cleverly implied is the C word, upon which he follows up with how she makes her great peace. I'm not going to explain that one any further. That one's up to you, but I think you get it. So we've had this obscene reference, but we've had someone interpreting based on signs in something that is written, a written text, and that's going to be of importance. And he goes on to open the letter, and it's a poem. Jove knows I love, but who? Lips do not move, no man must know. I may command where I adore, but silence like a Lucrece knife, with bloodless stroke my heart, heart doth gore. M-O-A-I, 
doth sway my life. More spelling lessons. M-O-A-I. Assigning, or as close to signing as this letter gets, assigning the role of lover to M-O-A-I. I love, but no man must know. I may command where I adore, M-O-A-I, doth sway my life. Mavalio's brain goes into action. Oh, well, she may command me, I serve her, she's my lady, so she commands, and yet she adores, of course. But what should that alphabetical position portend? If I could make that resemble something in me, M-O-A-I. Well, M. Malvolio, why, that begins my name. But then we run into problems. The rest of it doesn't follow suit. The next letter in his name is not O-M-O-A-I. But he finally decides that it works anyway as a reference to him because every single one of those letters, M-O-A-I, are somewhere in his name. Therefore, it means Malvolio. Right. A subtext here. We've had the reference to Puritan, and Shakespeare usually stays out of religious controversies, prudently, if nothing else, but he suggests here, as he suggests elsewhere, we have seen this in the history tetralogy as well, the theme of torturing scripture to make it mean what you want it to mean. And to be fair, both sides do it. Catholic, both sides meaning Catholic and Protestant. Both sides interpret scripture. Fundamentalists claim that scripture has one clear meaning, but the fact is that nobody agrees on what that meaning is, including the fundamentalists. It has to be interpreted. Different people and different factions of Christianity interpret it differently. Catholics interpret it one way and get doctrines like purgatory that aren't even really explicitly in the Bible. Puritans interpret it another way and they decide. And Shakespeare is implying that torturing the text to make it mean what you want is something that happens in a lot of places on a lot of occasions. And here it's happening in love as well as religion. He goes on. The poem is followed by prose. Apparently addressed, he decides, to him. And the letter continues, if this fall into thy hand, revolve. And be not afraid of greatness, the letter says. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. The words that make a great impact on Malvolio's mind. And then gives him advice, a whole list of advice. Cast off thy humble slough and appear fresh. Be opposite with a kinsman, surly with servants. 
In other words, stop being modest and deferential and be arrogant, especially with the servants. Remember who commended thy yellow stockings and wished to see thee ever cross-guarded. So change your behavior, be arrogant, and change your dress. Yellow stockings and cross-guarded. And advice signed the fortunate unhappy. Malvolio is just beside himself. I will be proud. I will read politic authors. I will baffle Sir Toby, and so forth and so on. I will live up to every single one of these suggestions. And finally, a postscript. If thou entertainst my love, let it appear in thy smiling. Thy smiles become thee. So, we know what's going to happen, and never fear, we will see it quite soon. He will walk in to Olivia's presence, acting arrogant, dressed in yellow stockings and cross-guarded. We don't have to know anything about Elizabethan fashion. All we have to infer is what is clearly obvious, that this is the fashion faux pas of all time. He's going to look grotesquely bad in the way he dresses and smiling. And we can just guess, this is a man who does not smile ever. So his attempt to smile is going to be utterly forced and unnatural. He doesn't even know how to do it, let alone do it naturally. So he is going to look absolutely ridiculous. Even worse, it's going to give people the impression that he has just gone mad. And Sir Toby exclaims that they're in, hidden behind listening to all this. Why, thou hast put him in such a dream that when the image of it leaves him, he must run mad. And that's prophetic of course. And Maria spells it out for slow members of the audience. He will come to her in yellow stockings, tis a color she abhors, cross-guarded, a fashion she detests. He will smile upon her, which will now be so unsuitable to her disposition, because she's playing at being melancholic, just like the rest of the leaders of this society, being addicted to a, to a melancholy as she is, and she will feel contempt for him, all of which, of course, turns out. End Act Two. Enter Act Three, which I usually call the Hinge Act, meaning in a five-act structure, this is the hinge upon which the plot turns, for the worse in a tragedy, for the better in a comedy. In this play, it might be better called the Unhinged Act, because all hell breaks loose here. The third act begins with an encounter between Viola and the Clown Fest. And we get an interchange, as we do sometimes in Shakespeare, that seems utterly inconsequential. This does not advance the plot at all. It's a bunch of verbal byplay. Why are we getting it? And there is no answer on the level of the plot. 
you usually have to stop and ask, but what is it showing us about two other possible things? One, the psychological, deeper levels of characterization, and two, even deeper, some common thematic pattern, and we get both here. We get Viola showing herself as, among other admirable things, quick-witted enough and high-spirited enough to be a match for the very clown fest, whose entire job consists, as we'll see, of playing upon words, and he pretty much even says that right here. This is a banter, it is a contest, like a verbal tennis match, and Viola shows herself up very well indeed, compared to the buffoons that are in various ways her rivals, rivals for Olivia. She has no designs on Olivia, but Olivia has designs on her, but both Malvolio and, in a bit, Sir Andrew Aguecheek do want Olivia, and they're both complete empty-headed fools, as we will see proved publicly. But at any rate here, Viola manages to hold her own with Fest, and then twice give him some money, which is the thing that you are supposed to do to show appreciation of the fool's wit. That is how the fool survived. This was a court position, uh, and the Fest is said to go back to Olivia's father's time, and she gives him a coin which indicates appreciation and respect, and therefore that's a touchstone that says something about her. But the verbal banter, the verbal tennis match, consists of talking about how words are twisted, and that's the thematic level. Fest begins by saying, a sentence is but a chevral glove to a good wit, how quickly the wrong side may be turned outward. Wit takes language, takes a sentence, and turns it inside out. Viola says, oh, that's certain. They that dally nicely with words may quickly make them wanton, may quickly make them go astray. And we get some double entendres out of that one as they develop it. And Viola finally asked, Art not thou the Lady Olivia's fool? And the Fest, and Fest replies, I am indeed not her fool, but her corrupter of words. When a society is corrupt, words are corrupt. They become equivocal. They have two sides and therefore become ambiguous more things to collect as strands of a thematic pattern. But more plot uh, undertaking. And Sir Toby comes in, interrupts this little byplay of Viola and Fest. And Sir Toby and crew have decided making fun of Malvolio is not enough for them. Now, they're going to make a fool out of Sir Andrew Aguecheek. Mind you, it doesn't take much. But they are going to set up a contest, a duel, 
Sir Toby comes running up to the disguised Cesario and says, I'm sorry that you have picked a fight with one of the deadliest people in Illyria, Sir Andrew Aguecheek, who lives to fight and who is a deadly duelist and well-known for it. And Viola is enough of a stranger here that, and she doesn't know Sir Andrew, that she believes this and she is immediately, for all her courage, struck with fear because she's a woman. She's brave, but she is no duelist, especially not with somebody who's supposed to be well-nigh a professional duelist. She's a woman who has not been taught how to use a sword. But Sir Toby claims, all a lie, claims there's no getting out of it. And that is deadly for Viola, or would be if it would ever take place. Viola has even more problems because Olivia comes in and declares herself. Her problems simply continue to mount. Olivia has finally, she sent the ring along, the jewelry along before by emissary, but now she is going to declare herself in person. I did send, she says, after the last enchantment you did here, a ring in chase of you. And now I want to hear your answer. Have you not set mine honor at the stake and baited it with all the unmuscled thoughts that tyrannous heart can think? Are you not treating me in the imagery of bear baiting? We remember that Orsino's name means bear as in the adjective ursine. And the imagery of a baited bear, which is one of the revelry activities that the Puritans in London also disapproved of in Shakespeare's time. Bear baiting was a popular sport. On the South Bank, across outside the city limits, where the theaters were, the unlicensed district where various chaotic things could not be cracked down upon. And we have bear baiting, and the image of the baited bear runs throughout the play. And I feel like a baited bear, Olivia is saying. Viola says in a single simple phrase that has worlds of meaning in the present context, I pity you. And Olivia, of course, doesn't know the tenth of the meaning of that. She, she demands, she presses it. I prithee, tell me what thou thinkst of me. And Viola responds that you do think you are not what you are. And we have to unravel that carefully. The surface meaning is you think you are a woman in love with a man. You are not that. You're a woman who is infatuated with another woman. But of course, the idea of an identity that is not what you think it is, is running all through the play already. And we are still in the middle of it in act three. Olivia replies, if I think so, I think the same of you. Viola replies, then you think right. I am not 
what I am. And of course, the surface meaning is one thing, but I am not what I am has a deeper meaning than Olivia could possibly guess at this point. And all Olivia can hear is, I am not one who can love you. And she replies, I would you were as I would have you be. Viola replies, would it be better, madam, than I am? And this is a mess. All Olivia can say is, come again, maybe I can change your mind. And we return in Act 3, Scene 2, to the dueling business. Sir Toby announcing to uh, Viola that we're going to have a lot of fun with the duel here. We go on to Act 3, Scene 3, Enter Sebastian and Antonio. Sebastian is the brother of Viola, who has survived, though Viola does not know that, thinks he's dead, though we have just seen. In one small part of her mind, she holds out a little hope. She doesn't know for sure. Maybe he could have survived, and indeed he has, along with his friend Antonio. And Sebastian is going to go and enter into the court of Olivia. Antonio is very wary of this. He is a fast friend. We have the theme of male friendship here, and he is the fast friend of Sebastian. But he says, I do not, without danger, walk these streets. Once in a sea fight against the Count, his galleys, I did some service, of some note indeed, that were I taken, it would scarce be answered. I once was the enemy of Count Orsino and fought against some of his ships. And Sebastian says, oh, be like you slew a great number of his people. And Antonio assures him, oh, the offense is not of such a bloody quarrel. And it might have been answered in repaying him, but it has not been resolved. So at least, you know, we're not expected to sympathize with a guy who uh, committed a bunch of killings. But there was a misunderstanding, and Antonio is taking a big risk of getting arrested if he follows his friend along loyally, as he wants to and feels he should. We have, in other words, the makings of several royal misses. The mess with Malvolio, who is about to appear and make an idiot of himself in front of Olivia. The business with the duel between Sir Andrew Aguecheek and Cesario, who is really a woman. And the business of Sebastian and Antonio entering into a place where there is someone who looks exactly like Sebastian, namely Cesario. More fun to be had, and we will have it beginning next week.